I think we've been on quite a wild ride, as, as it were, in dealing with this issue of the deep state. And as I said from the very onset, all the way back in, uh, on New Year's Eve, that, uh, that this is um, not so much dealing with the issues of politics, though that's going to be dealt with. But more importantly, what is happening in the last days as we await not only the return of Jesus Christ for his church, but in reality, the the fulfilling of all prophecy and eventually the revealing of the Antichrist to this world. And that is something that, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to look at not from an an academic standpoint and not from a position of just saying, well, this is an interesting thing. I think you would would agree with me that it is more than just interesting now. It's, It's reality every day, every day on TV, every day on the news, every day the things that are happening worldwide, fires in Australia, uh, the issues that are taking place in Washington, D.C., and throughout our country, as well as worldwide. A thought came to mind this morning, and and, uh, I haven't even gotten to the preface of our message today. But a thought came to mind this morning that each and every one of us, wherever we are with the Lord, that each and every one of us is just a heartbeat away from either hell or heaven. And that should be serious enough for us then to pay attention to what is going on in the world, but most specifically, what we see already prophesied in the Word of God. My purpose in focusing this series of studies on the deep state was not based on a whim. Instead, it was prayerfully and carefully planned to bring this congregation to a fuller understanding that the events leading to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for his church before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that event known as the rapture of the church, can happen at any moment and God's people need to be ready. These studies are also designed to awaken the half-hearted and to encourage the wholehearted believer to the realization that what we see happening in our world today is clearly planned and prophesied thousands of years ago. And now nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Thessalonica. He said, I would not have you ignorant brethren. Now, Paul used that phrase three times in his writings. Once to the Romans, about his desire to be with them, though he was restrained at the time. Another time, he used those words to the Corinthian church pertaining to the spiritual gifts. He did not want them to be ignorant about the gifts of the Spirit. And lastly, he used them to the Thessalonians when it came to prophetic issues, specifically the rapture of the church, but to to specifically prophetic issues, which, by the way, prophecy is our business. Jesus made it so. 
Well, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, my brethren, about the days that are now here. Paul called them perilous times. Now, I'm going to read something from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. It won't be up behind me, but I want you to listen to them. Because I want you to take hold of each trait that is mentioned here. This know also, Paul said, that in the last days, perilous times, dangerous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, which means out of control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. My question to you this morning as we get into this study is, where did all those traits come from? Where did they come from? Well, I think you'll begin to know that answer in our text. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. The very first statement that says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. We know what happens. They eat of the fruit. And in verse 14, it says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, hostility, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Not long after that exchange, do we read in verse 1 of chapter 6 of Genesis these words, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for, he, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, the Nephilim. And also after that, when the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. But notice verse 5. 
And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then we meet in chapter 10 a person named Nimrod. Verses 8 through 11, it says that Cush, the grandson of Noah through Ham, that Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. And I'll give definitions to these words. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, before the Lord and the beginning of his kingdom. Did you notice the beginning of his kingdom? Was Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur, which is Assyria, and he built Nineveh. This is something that we're dealing with in the book of Jonah on Wednesday nights. That's a commercial. And the city, Rehoboth and Kala. Well, what effect did Nimrod have on this earth? Well, in Genesis 11, and we're not going to get to this until next week, but I'm going to read it anyway. In Genesis 11, verses 1 through 6, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city. Build us a city. And a tower which, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Now, last week, we, we left off on the last of the demonic beings that we wrestle against, that being the spiritual wickedness in high places. And this is actually a good uh, stepping stone leading to our study this morning. We go back for just a moment to Ephesians 6, verse 12, where it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Spiritual wickedness, not just in this particular atmosphere that we ourselves are engaged in, but actually in the heavenlies. Spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. We're not going to get to, to this until next time probably, but... but all of that can be seen pretty clearly in the book of Job, in the first two chapters. But what we need to understand for today is that there is a malicious army. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the very fact that we're in a war. 
There are many battles here. Every one of us represents a battle going on, by the way. But it's part of this greater war, this war that we are having against the enemy of our souls. But he's not alone in all of this. That is why in chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians, we are told there are principalities, powers, these are all plural words, rulers and wickednesses. It's a malicious army, a spiritual host of depraved, wicked demons, if you will, that are swarming, actually, in the heavenlies, in an unseen realm that we cannot, we cannot see. We can see effects of it in our lives. We see effects of it in the way that some people are living their lives today. But we do not see what we're wrestling. That is why we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the commander-in-chief of all the Lord of hosts. So battles rage every moment of every day in the unseen realm, although we may see that battle in the lives of those who are outright targets of the enemy. Take, for example, the nation of Israel. Jesus was very clear when he came to Israel. He was... Among his own, though his own received him not, as John said. But we're told in Matthew 12, a very extensive uh, chapter that deals with the detractors of Jesus getting on him because his disciples were breaking the Sabbath law by eating in the fields. And then that Jesus had broken the Sabbath law because he had healed someone on the Sabbath day. And when he did that, what did they say? They said that he did that by Beelzebub, not by the Spirit of God. So eventually what happens is that he calls them a generation of vipers. That's an interesting thing because a viper is a serpent. Then he explains to them in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeketh rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth, findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. And what the Lord was saying to them here was here was a nation of the Jewish people that had been in captivity in Babylon. They were allowed to come back into the land. And in essence, God cleansed them. God purified them of their idolatry. That's why they were in captivity in the first place. So now they're not really idolaters anymore but what are they doing now they're trying to reform themselves by the law and the one who came for them they're rejecting in fact chapter 12 is a very significant chapter of Matthew because it is saying Jesus now says hey I've come to you and you've rejected me I'm going to the Gentiles
And there's reference to that here. But the problem is that the evil spirit of idolatry will come back seven times stronger. And eventually, prophetically speaking, where Israel is today, and of course we want Israel to be where they are, nonetheless, they're building a third temple. And what's going to happen when the third temple comes? That temple is going to be the temple of Antichrist. And because they want peace so much, they'll accept anyone who comes. It's a wicked generation. Because you cannot reform yourself. We need Jesus Christ. The Jewish people need their Messiah. This is why he is going to come again. And they will see him as he is. They will see him who was pierced for them. And they will weep. And God will restore them. But that's yet to come. But that word for wicked, that very same word that Jesus used for that generation, poneria, in the Greek, is used both here and in the Ephesian passage. Wickedness. And it describes the depth of depravity and of evil. Now this is where we need to pay very close attention to what we've been saying all along. Should anyone even ask the question, how bad is bad? How bad is bad? How evil is evil? How wicked is wicked? How bad is bad? You know, many think that some bad isn't all that bad. Right? Well, some bad is not all that bad. It's just kind of like, you know, well, there are white lies and really bad lies. But the Bible says that all lies and all liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. So even white lies are bad and really bad. But see, we've gotten into this point of, of, of making kind of uh, levels of, of how bad things are. And so things can't be all that bad. So levels of bad are created as some measure of what may or may not affect you in this life or in the next. But as things go, the prophetic scriptures are very clear what happens when we don't take wickedness and evil seriously. It's been prophesied, Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That's making bad kind of bad and some other things really bad, but, you know, it's not all that bad. And I never liked that thing about it calling evil good and good evil. Some of us lived in that generation where people walking around saying, That's bad, that's bad. What's bad? No, it's good. Is it good? No, it's bad. I don't understand. That's why we need to be focused on what's good and what's bad. What's pure and what's evil. There's not a, there's not a little, you know, no man's land there. There's a line. He goes on to say that put darkness for light and light for darkness. Listen, is there something that's in between light and darkness? No, because if you're in darkness and the light of the glory of Christ shines on you, there's no more darkness. And we're told we are to be children of light. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. That's the problem today. People being wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight rather than being wise in the word of Scripture. Being wise in the word of God. We're not taking life seriously anymore because we've got to make these little distinctions as to, you know, what's good and what's, what's kind of good and maybe what's bad and what's kind of bad. The wickedness that we wrestle with every day is of the worst kind of evil. An evil that can only be attributed to the one who is most evil. That is the devil himself, Satan. Greg Reed in his book, War of the Ages, and by the way, Greg's going to be here in a couple of weeks. He's, kind of, he's, he's going to kind of round out what we've been doing this month. I'm really glad he's coming. But Greg Reed in his book, War of the Ages, rightly says this. When dealing with these principalities and powers and all, he said, they are not Darth Vader, a creature evil and malevolent until the mask comes off at the end and he is redeemed. No, they are evil to the core. There is no good in them. They cannot be saved. Satan cannot be saved. He doesn't want to be. That's insightful, folks. Satan doesn't want to be saved. He cannot be saved, but he doesn't want to be saved. You think about Hollywood today. Hollywood likes to bring up these antiheroes. You know, they're kind of heroes, but they're kind of bad guys, but they're good guys too. You see how Satan confuses our minds through the media? This is God's word, and it is true. It doesn't compromise. That's why we need to stay uncompromised in God and in Christ. At the end of my introduction to this study, just a little while ago, I asked the question, based on the characteristics of men in these perilous times from 2 Timothy 3, what was the question? Where do all those traits come from the traits that we read where does it come from that men are lovers of them of their own selves or that or 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 who coveted and boasted proudly while blaspheming the one who created him who taught disobedience to the first man and woman and passed on the attitude of ingratitude who is constantly and continually unholy and fierce and a despiser of all that is good and would welcome a form of godliness without any true power of God being manifested? Only one, the serpent, who we call the Nahash. That's, that's the Hebrew word for a serpent, Nahash. Now the serpent, in verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent, which is Nahash, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Subtle. He deals with subtleties, but it kills us if we're not paying attention. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, did he really say that? That you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He also twists the scriptures, by the way, doesn't he? Which tells us something. Sometimes the enemy knows the scriptures better than the people who claim to be believers. That's painful. But the word Nahash is used to describe the serpent who shows up in the Garden of Eden to have a conversation with a woman who had been taken from the side of man. We call her Eve. 
Now, the word nahash has been simply translated as snake or serpent, as a noun, but the word has a deeper meaning. Yes, as a noun, it refers to a serpent, but as a verb, it carries a full and different connotation. It is the connotation of a deceiver. A nahash is a deceiver. What is the devil's main work to deceive. Yet even more than that, in the most reliable Hebrew dictionary, the word nahash is defined as to hiss. To hiss. Like a snake. But that hiss is a whisper of a magic spell. It has to do with occultism, spiritism. He's the originator, by the way, of all of those things. That's why we should not, me- we should not mess with things that are occultic, like Ouija boards, or tarot cards, you name it. You go on and on and on. The word nachash means to prognosticate, like psychics. I used to say, you know, uh, Dionne Warwick, you know, she used to have, do commercials for the psychic net, network. And I used to think, well, that's the wrong person to put on there as a, as a representative for psychics because she was the one who sang, do you know the way to San Jose? She didn't even know how to go to San Jose. And now she's telling us to, you know, be a psychic here. But a prognosticator is one who learns from intense observation. So there are diviners. Witchcraft. And so in effect, Satan truly takes on the role of a snake in the grass. That's another good way of looking at Nahash. You snake in the grass. You've deceived us. And so is it any wonder that Jesus would say to his own detractors... From his own people in the very temple where they were worshiping God. That he would say to them in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Now you might sit there and say, well, was Jesus not being a little bit tough on them? (laughs) Is it tough when you're truthful? Jesus saw the garden. Jesus was there. He says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. What would they do not many weeks later? He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. He's the father of lies. This is the reason why the scriptures are very clear that lying and liars will not enter into the kingdom. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That's why you cannot say, well, there's white lies and darker lies. No, there's a lie is a lie. 
because it comes from the intent of the heart. The devil's anger against the Lord and all that God created to be good is now reflected in his self-love. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Where did men get it? From him. Self-love. His covetousness. His desire to be God. His desire to have the throne. His desire to be on the mount of the Most High. And what about his blasphemous boasting? Which once again we see in Isaiah 14. Where Lucifer has said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The five I wills of Lucifer. And not only that, but there was the pride of Ezekiel 28. Now these are things we read last time. But there in verses 13 through 15, the anointed cherub of God. By the way, the anointed cherub means literally the guardian cherub of the throne. This Lucifer was the guardian cherub, this light bearer as it were. Of him it says, thou hast been an Eden, the garden of God. Well, who was an Eden, the garden of God? The Nahash, the serpent. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the, sa- the sapphire, the, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. That's what he was dressed like. And so, at some point he saw himself and thought, I deserve some of this praise too. And then it says, the workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee, in the day that thou was created. He's a created being, yet he thinks that he is the creator and has the power to be. And by the way, the workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes, we're going to get to later, but those are instruments for worship. He was a worship leader. Beware, worship leaders. So I say that because I was a worship leader. We have to humble ourselves. There's nothing for us to be proud about. There's everything for us to be humble when God calls us and uses us in that particular ministry before the throne of God. Then he says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee. So, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee till echvel echvel is the word from where we get the word evil which literally means wickedness and unrighteousness and perverseness all of that wrapped up in the word iniquity and it was found in this Guardian, angel, with not much time at all to delve into the occurrences in the garden between the woman and the serpent, 
not to mention the silence of Abraham throughout. And there's a lot that could be said on that particular issue. We know that just a few chapters later, the illicit and illegitimate plans of the Nahash were beginning to take root. That's when we go to chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also for he also is flesh, yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. God had a timetable here. Man was becoming more wicked and more wicked each and every day. And the Lord said, at, at some point, I'm going to stop being patient. And he says, his day shall be 120 years. That's interesting because about 120 years later, Noah will have completed the ark. And God would have stopped and said, now judgment comes. And here's the reason why. Verse 4, there were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days. What, did they just pop out of the ground? No, that's what verses 1 through 3 is about. Where they came from. The product of the sons of God. By the way, I was saying that we were going to spend a little time dealing with Psalm 82 that we read earlier today. And, and it would be next week. Actually, we could do it here right now. The sons of God. Psalm 82 mentions God in the congregation of the mighty. And he calls them God's little g. Do you know that God, at the beginning of the verse, is Elohim, speaking of God, because it is the God who created the heaven and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He uses the word Elohim. But at the end of the phrase where it talks about gods, the word is Elohim. Interesting, isn't it? You got to wait till next week. You got to come back. Because I'm going to talk about that. So there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty. The word mighty is gibor. And we'll talk about that word in a moment. Uh, mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Now, we know we would think that renown means, you know, well, you know, they were high and lifted up. And maybe they were high and lifted up by a lot of people on the earth in those days. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that was a good thing. In fact, they were not good, as we shall see in just a moment. And notice verse 5, because if they were good, we wouldn't happen to see verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Any room for just a little bad? Now it was not just the wickedness of the Nahash, of the serpent. It was now the wickedness of man. No good thing could ever come from the union of some sort of demonic entity and fallen sinful flesh. 
sons of God, daughters of men. And while there are those who believe that this passage was speaking of the sons of God being the children of Seth, who had relations with the daughters of Cain, that actually becomes far-fetched when you read the words of Peter and Jude. 2 Peter 2 verse 4, Peter says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, the angels, fallen angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. That is very similar to what Jude says in in verses 6 through 8. And the angels which kept not their first estate, and I quoted this last week to tell you that the angels kept not their principality, their arche, the same word. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They're in prison right now for what they did in Genesis chapter 6. Then he says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Now we would say, well, you know, I mean the sons of Seth you know, the daughters of Cain. No, they're still flesh. How can that be? Strange flesh. Strange flesh would be stranger than what you are. By the way, there's an abomination mentioned in the law in the book of Leviticus. It's called bestiality. We'll talk about that more. I know that you're all right enough. All the things we're going to talk about later. We'll be here till June talking about the deep state. Not, not, not really. And going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, this is serious, folks. We, got, we cannot be playing around with God. We cannot be playing with fire, folks. And then he says, likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. The context is still with what is in verse 6. The angels who kept not their first estate. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. I'm sorry, of dignities. So the connector then, the connector to the very characteristics that came through such wicked means, again, following Satan's devious plans, would be the person of Nimrod. The person of Nimrod. So when we read, as in Genesis 10, verses 8 and 9, that Cush begat Nimrod. By the way, the name Nimrod means rebel or rebellious. That says a lot about a person. And his actions say a lot more. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now some get this picture from reading that, that a mighty hunter before the Lord is just somebody who says, Hi Lord, I'm a mighty hunter, and I'm before you. You have to understand that what that means is that he was a mighty hunter against the things of God. 
Now we mentioned the, the word gibor. Gibor. It is commonly believed that, the, uh, that uh, of course, I, I mentioned that Nimrod means rebel. But what is most significant about that is not so much his name, but the word applied to this son of Cush. It is the word mighty. Gibor. It is used in reference to a warrior and or a giant. It is my understanding that Nimrod was both. A warrior against God and a giant. It is used in reference, as I said, uh, to a warrior or a giant. In both cases, the word applies to Nimrod. A rabbinic interpretation of Genesis 10 verse 8 reads that this Nimrod as a mighty hunter before the Lord, truly got in the face, and I quote, got in the face of God and hunted to draw men away from him. I think that is a very descriptive but accurate understanding of a mighty hunter before the Lord. He got in the face of God, a mighty hunter before the Lord, got in the face of God and hunted to draw men away from him. Under the influence of Satan, under the influence of the Nahash, Nimrod desired to draw man into a system that would plunge them into a devil's hell. And I want you to consider this as part of what Paul calls the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to read a little bit before the verse and then after or actually up to the verse, and then we're going to come back to this passage later. So keep a finger uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians. But it says in, in verses uh, 3 through 7, let no man deceive you by any means. Now remember, Paul is preaching prophecy here, and he uses a word that Jesus himself taught prophetically in Matthew chapter 24. Let no man deceive you. Jesus continued to say, do not be deceived. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Except there come a falling away first. That day shall not come. The day of the Lord. The day of the beginning of tribulation. That day will not come except there come a falling away first, an apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. There are many people who believe that the Antichrist is walking this earth right now. And that is very possible. People will not know who it is. We all have different ideas of who it might be. So if you watch YouTube or Facebook long enough, you'll get all kinds of different ideas of who the Antichrist might be. But he's under wraps until the Lord says it's time to reveal him. There comes a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. How many people are called the sons of perdition in the, in the scriptures? And what is the son of perdition? The devil is the son of perdition, the son of, 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 uh, of sin, the son of, of lostness. The Antichrist is, is referred to as the son of perdition here. Judas Iscariot. It's called the son of perdition. 
I think it was back either in the late 60s or early 70s, but back then there was this, this, this Broadway musical called Jesus Christ Superstar. How many of you remember that? All the oldie guys. Okay. All the oldies but goodies. Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and one, of the, one, one of the premises of, of this particular uh, uh, show, Broadway show as it were, was that it, that it, made, it, it made Judas Iscariot to be out, almost a, a, a victim. But he is no victim in Scripture. He was well covered until when? Until the very end. When Jesus says to him, do what you came to do. And he leaves the, the, the other 11 and Jesus. Yes, he may have felt bad about what he did. But he was a son of perdition. Knew exactly what he was doing. Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. How many forerunners of Antichrist have there been in history? A lot of them. Antiochus Epiphanes, Adolf Hitler, you can go on and on. Remember you not that when I was with, yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. The mystery of iniquity is already rolling here. Only he who now letteth will let. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. Well, who's restraining all of these things but the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ today? That's why the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ is hated by the world. That is why we are hated because we come and we read and love the word of God. We're not ashamed of the word of God. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We are to be unashamed of the gospel. But when we change the words of the, of the scriptures to mean something that it doesn't mean. To put it aside so that we can take hold of new age ideas and techniques. And call that a new Christianity. A new way of doing things. I can't stand it when I pass a church and it says a new way to worship. That's a new way to worship. There's only one way to worship. With a heart that is humble before God. Then there's that word Sayyid. Going back to Genesis 10. I've got to go on here because of time. It's the Hebrew word for hunter. Sayyid. Gibor Sayyid. A mighty hunter. But it has strong meaning. The word Sayyid means, and, and, and it's a progression. To chase, to hunt, and to take, and eventually to devour like meat. That is Sayyid. That is what a hunter does. He chases, he hunts, and he takes and devours like meat. And this was Nimrod's agenda. It was his agenda 
before God, in the face of God. And it was also the agenda of the city of Babylon or Babel. Not to mention the very agenda of Nineveh in Assyria. Now the Lord had commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry out to them that they needed to repent for their egregious sins. Jonah went the other way. you you got to come on Wednesday to know what's going on. This is a commercial for Wednesday night study of the book of Jonah. But it all connects, doesn't it? It's all connecting. Genesis 10.10 says, In the beginning of his kingdom, of his kingdom, there was only one king, and there, there is only one king. There is only and will only be one king for all of eternity. And that king, his name is Jesus Christ. But Satan wants to be a king. And through Nimrod, he has made him a king over Babel and over Assyria as well, because he built Assyria and he built Nineveh. But here's the reason it's found in the Hebrew word halal, halal, C H A L A L, halal. Because this is what is most telling about Nimrod. Verse 8 again. Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be. That little phrase, began to be, that is the word halal. And what did he begin to be? This is, this is a very powerful word because what it means is, it means to pollute, it means to profane, it means to desecrate, it, uh, to desecrate oneself ritually, to desecrate oneself sexually, to defile and to violate and to dishonor. It means, uh, it's a term related to hunting as well. Because it means to bore through or to pierce through. And, lay, and of course we'll know from, from the uh, events of Antichrist later on that he is going to be pierced through himself. Why? Because he's a counterfeit. Jesus was pierced through. And rose again from the dead. And Antichrist will be, appear to be pierced through. And then supposedly he comes back to life and people are going to say, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah. Kalal means to wound fatally as a hunter does his prey. And Nimrod, in other words, then is the forerunner of Antichrist. Powered by the Nahash. Powered by the serpent. And just as Jesus promised to return, so Nimrod... Nimrod is Satan's promise of his return in the person of Antichrist. But more of that next time. More of that next time. I got to give you a moment to digest this stuff. But by the way, I also need to give you something to be encouraged by. So go back to 2 Thessalonians, and we'll close with this. This is your encouragement, folks. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. 
That was nearly 2,000 years ago. It is working even more now. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. These are words that we cannot mince. We cannot cheapen. It is telling us these days and times are to be taken seriously. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that that they should believe a lie. Well, where did the lie begin? In Genesis chapter 3. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we, and here's your encouragement, folks, that we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. Hold the traditions. You know, some people take that word traditions and say, yeah, you know, all the traditions that man has put into into some kind of liturgy or some kind of way of of worshiping the Lord. No, you know what what the tradition is? You hold the tradition which you've been taught. This is the tradition, the word of God. And it says, whether by word or our epistle. Well, didn't their epistle become the word of God? It's all the word of God. So now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Be comforted in knowing that God is on the throne. Jesus is coming again. And he is going to bring us back home with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.